0: Well, let's continue in our study of 1 Timothy. So if you'll turn to 1 Timothy in your Bibles, we'll begin verse 1 of chapter 6. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we'll hand you a Bible so you can read with us as we are going to cover the first 10 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6. While you're turning there, as I said, thank you for praying for us. Uh, for our trip back uh, from Israel and during the time we were we're gone. I also want to thank this Veterans Weekend, all the veterans that are here this morning. We are very grateful. We thank you for your service and your sacrifice, and it's very much appreciated here at Calvary Chapel. Also, the kids in the children's ministry are going to get a little gift we brought back from Jerusalem. It's going to be a bookmark that has a picture of Jerusalem and some... uh, Uh, flowers from the Holy Land. And so to be looking for that parents as they'll be handing those out. But this morning for us here, we want to continue in 1 Timothy as we've been carefully looking at Paul's letter to Timothy. And the apostle has been instructing who he calls in chapter 1, a true son in the faith. And Timothy, this is how you are to conduct yourself to be an example to the believers, but also in your ministry. Uh, This is how you minister as a pastor. And we have seen Paul in this letter used words such as faithful and pursue and take heed and honor and guard and stir up and and uh, pay attention to all these words are words that uh, describe commitment and faithfulness and discipline. They're very uh, much carefully chosen words that charge Timothy with the responsibility in his walk with the Lord and then in his ministry to the Lord. So, Father, we do ask that this morning that we would be attentive to what you want to show us through your word. That, Father... This is for us what uh, Paul was writing to Timothy because it's all inspired by you. And so, Lord, help us be ones that our hearts are teachable right now and our ears are open to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we know that some in the church at Ephesus, they were not persevering. Uh, There were those who were given over to strange doctrine. Paul names two individuals in chapter 1 that he says that their faith has suffered shipwreck. In chapter 4, he said that some will depart from the faith Given heed to deceiving and demonic spirits. Last time we saw that Paul writes that some of the younger widows have already turned aside to idleness, being busybodies. And now as we move into chapter six, some have strayed from the faith because of greediness. And even though Timothy had been raised with the knowledge of Scripture from childhood, we know that in the second epistle he writes to to Timothy. We'll see that as we will move in to Second Timothy that you must continue in the Scriptures that you have known from childhood Timothy. And he also, Paul mentions uh, Timothy's mother and his grandmother that taught him the scriptures that first were believers. And we know that Timothy, as Paul came in on his second missionary journey, that he was already a believer, whether that was through the result of Paul's ministry to Timothy or through his Mother and grandmother. We know that Timothy has been with Paul at this time that Paul's writing to him for some 15 years. He has been discipled by Paul. Timothy has traveled with him, has co-labored with him, suffered with him, and now Paul has commissioned him to pastor this large church at Ephesus. And Paul felt it was uh, important to encourage him to persevere until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we see clearly here in the last chapter of 1 Timothy is that the person that has a carnal, worldly perspective on life, it will cause you, as now Paul uses words for the one that describes the person who is worldly or uh, doesn't persevere, to turn aside, uh, to be shipwrecked, to stray, It brings temptations, a snare, destruction. But the one Christian who keeps a heavenly perspective, it will cause you to persevere. And as you continue in doctrine, the purpose is in the teaching of the word of God and applying it in your life, it will bring a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Timothy, and it's for us here at Calvary Chapel, keep your mind and your eyes on heaven, on the eternal. Live in the expectancy of the Lord's return. Live with the priority in the kingdom of God. And that will be in contrast to those that Paul will talk about in this chapter that they were straying. They were departing because they were rich to the world. They were discontent in the world and they wanted more of the world. But first, as we move into chapter 6, the apostle is going to address this whole issue concerning slaves and masters. As we read in verse 1. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God in His doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved and teach and exhort these things. Now, at this time in history, of course, as many of you know, in the Roman Empire, that there were millions and millions of slaves, anywhere between 50 to 60 million slaves in the empire and it's difficult for us today to think that an individual could be owned by another human being but that's what was common in the the culture and in the empire at that time it was common in Ephesus because Ephesus was a prosperous city it was a wealthy city it was the banking center of proconsular Asia. So there were many in Ephesus that had slaves. And it wasn't just those who did hard labor, but it was those who raised the master's children and were teachers, those who were doctors, those who had special trades. They were all part of of the, you know, category of being slaves and and many of them uh, being owned by masters. And under normal circumstances, slaves masters had no association outside the institution of slavery. And then all of a sudden, think about this. Here comes Paul the Apostle on his third missionary journey. He comes cruising into the city of Ephesus. And we read in Acts chapter 19 that an amazing and very powerful revival took place in the city. So many people got saved that they came and they were burning their magic books and occultic books. They stopped buying the idols uh, so much so that the silversmiths that made those idols were going bankrupt and they caused a revival. And think about it here with the city given to revival that's taken place, people coming to the gospel, all of a sudden you got masters that are getting saved and they witness in their household. You got slaves that were getting saved uh, and church history writes that some of those slaves ended up becoming overseers and, and elders in the church. Can you imagine that? So all of a sudden the slaves are overseers. The masters are coming in. Uh, They're saved and they're coming and part of the church. All of a sudden relationships are changing. And with both masters and servants getting saved, all of a sudden they're brothers in the Lord, they're sisters in the Lord, and they're thrown together into the family of God. And it would create problems that the apostles we're having to confront and address repeatedly. You read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Galatians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 6, 1 Peter chapter 2. It all addresses the issue of masters and servants. And Paul would say in Colossians chapter 4 verse 1 that masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about masters doing well for their bondservants servants. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is specifically addressing those who are bond servants. Verse 1 of the chapter, bond servants, you honor your masters. And again, that word means respect, just as it did as we saw in chapter 5 verse 17, that an elder that's given to the study of the word who labors in the word and in doctrine, is to receive double honor, that is, is to be respected. And now you bond servants, you are to respect your masters, respect the position that they are in. And Paul doesn't say only respect them if they are believers. But you respect them because it pleases God and it is a good witness to your master. Now today's application for us is those of us who have bosses, those of us who have a supervisor. You are to respect them. You are to respect the position that they are in. Colossians chapter 3 beginning at verse 22. Servants or that is employees obey all things uh, your master or boss or supervisor according to the flesh not with eye service as men pleasers but in sincerity of heart fearing God and whatever you do you do it hardly as unto the lord and not to men knowing that from the lord you will receive listen the reward of the inheritance for you serve the lord jesus so us as christians as an employee you show respect to the position that your boss is in your supervisor you obey your boss and you might be thinking here well you don't know my boss I don't agree with their policies or how they do things. I'm smarter than he is or she is. Unless it is immoral or illegal or puts you at danger, you obey your boss your employer, not with eye service. You don't go around telling people how stupid your boss is, and this is how I would do it if I was in charge, but you obey and you honor the position that they have in sincerity of heart, we are told, fearing God. Now, I'm not naive to think that all of you work for wonderful bosses. I know that some of you work for some pretty tough bosses, difficult bosses, and they even live immoral lives, But at the job, when they tell you to do something, you're to do it. You have roles. You have responsibilities. You're to meet those responsibilities. Because here's the thing. The Bible says that as you do that, it honors the Lord ultimately, primarily. There's reward to be given to you. And it's a good witness to your boss. You don't just work hard when the boss is around. You don't get caught up in slander and gossip and the jokes. You say that, Lord, I know that you have me here at this job, at this time, and I'm going to work as unto you, Lord. And I'm going to be a witness for you. And you please the Lord in how you conduct yourself at the workplace. And you say and have the mindset, I'm going to be the hardest worker that I can be. And I really believe that Christians, listen, should be the best, hardest, most diligent workers at the workplace. And Lord, your will is that I do it hardly as unto the Lord this job. And then Paul gives some further instructions to bond servants, employees, verse two. He says, addressing those who have masters, bosses that are saved, believers, you servants, you work hard for them. Don't despise them because they are also your brethren. And so in other words, don't think, hey, my boss is a Christian. He's a brother. I should get favoritism. Uh, I shouldn't have to work as hard for him. He should cut me some slack, uh, all of this. He, he shouldn't correct me or she should not correct me. The scripture tells us as employees, having bosses that are Christians, what a blessing that is. But we should be more dedicated to working hard for them because you are serving that brother. You are serving that sister. I remember years and years ago when I was young, I was working at a place where uh, the boss was a Christian. And there were some guys that were working uh, for the summer and they were from a Bible college. And there was three or four of them. And we got 15 minute breaks. And they were taking 30 minute breaks. It was going into 40 minute breaks. And the boss had to address them and reprimand them. And, and they were all upset. I remember hearing them complaining, well, we're Christians and, and we were praying and, and we were talking about the things of the Lord. And I, I had a hard time understanding their mentality. Listen, we get 15 minute breaks and we're working. Why should you have a break for a half an hour? It was not a good witness. Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 6 tells us, you should be working hard for your boss. You don't despise your boss because he expects you to work. And it grieves me when I hear of a Christian that has a reputation for being lazy. You go to work. You show respect. You don't have disrespect and contempt for the boss. And I really want to encourage all of us, and particularly young people, You learn these things. You learn the work. You learn the value of hard work. You learn respect to others. Parents, teach it to your kids. You see, those who illustrated this, as we see in Scripture, were blessed by the Lord. And they were in very difficult circumstances. I think about Joseph, who was sold into slavery in the book of Genesis. He was only about 16, 17 years old. And there he is in Potiphar's house, and he did his work so diligently that Potiphar made him the steward over all his household. And then when Joseph was accused wrongly and justly uh, uh, by Potiphar's wife, he ends up in prison. He's there for 12 years. In an Egyptian prison at that time was very difficult. And Joseph didn't pout. He didn't complain. He didn't murmur. But he served the prisoners there so much so that the warden made him the overseer of all the prisoners, gave him ministry. And the Lord looked down and saw that and said, I like that. And he honored Joseph and made him the prime minister of Egypt. Most of you, know this story. I think about Daniel. Daniel in the book of Daniels. Think about it. As the Babylonians came in and began to take the young men, choice men, away from Judah into captivity. Daniel's only, again, 16, 17 years old. And he's there to serve in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a difficult boss. He was a hothead. If you made him mad, he killed you. And he would get mad just like that. And here is Daniel was determined, I'm not going to defile myself. I'm going to not eat of the king's meat and wine. He was committed to the Lord. He didn't compromise in that way. But he was one that served Nebuchadnezzar so much so that it was a witness to Nebuchadnezzar. And we see that in the book of Daniels. And it tells us that Daniel had an excellent spirit within him. And that same spirit that was in Daniel is in you. And so he was one that respected the position. He served in an honorable, godly way, and the Lord blessed it, and it carried on into serving Darius under the Medes and the Persians. I am learning this, and I've learned this being an overseer, that watching those who God uses and bless are those who have respect in their work, those who work diligently, and those who do it in a way that pleases the Lord. And I also watch the, who God uses in ministry, that he uses those, and as I see those who have real potential used in ministry is someone that I observe, and they have learned to be one that, that knows how to work and their roles and responsibility and is willing to submit to those who are in authority. God uses them. God uses them. You who are herding sheep on the backside of the desert for 40 years, Moses, I'm going to use you to free the children of Israel from Egypt. You who are threshing wheat up there in the mountains of Samaria, Gideon, you who is the least in your family, your family the least in your tribe, your tribe the least of all the tribes of Israel, I'm going to use you to be a mighty man to free the children of Israel from the Midianites. You who are plowing behind the oxen, the mantle is going to fall upon you for the prophetic office, Elijah. You who are a fig picker, Amos, I have a message for you to give to a nation. And you who are casting nets, Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of men and you who are a tent maker, Paul, I'm going to use you to turn the world upside down. And I hear people say, or they tell me, I want to be in ministry. I want to be involved in missions. I want to be a pastor. I want to be involved in, in ministry to a greater degree. And they're sitting around. You go to work and you work hard, and you do whatever you do as unto the Lord, and you respect those in authority, and you learn submission to your boss, and you be responsible and faithful, and you have a godly attitude, and you bless others with the sweat of your brow, and then you're going to see God tap you on the shoulder, and he's going to give you more significant tasks to do but grumping and complaining and sitting around and doing nothing, being all discontent and disrespectful, and I'm not going to submit, the Lord's not going to bless it. Speaking about being discontent, Paul addresses that as we continue on, verse 3. And if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness... He is proud, knowing nothing. But is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy and strife and reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. As we continue, we know that in this epistle, we've seen Paul has addressed and warned against those who misuse God's word. Timothy, you need to guard against those who misuse the word of God. At the end of verse 2, teach and exhort these things. It is a theme that we have seen over and over again in this epistle. Chapter one, I charge they teach no other doctrine. Chapter four, instruct the brethren in these things. These things command and teach. Give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Meditate on these things. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. Chapter five, observe these things. And now chapter six, teach and exhort these things. And if anyone teaches otherwise, who does not consent to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the sound doctrine. He is proud and he knows nothing. The person who refuses to let God's word be the final authority in their life knows nothing. They're puffed up. They have inflated egos. Uh, These that Paul is talking about teach contrary to what the true gospel is. They're obsessed. Paul uses a medical term here, which means they are diseased with they're, they're obsessed with disputes, arguments over words. In other words, those who misuse God's word try to be expert debaters, twisting the meaning of words. They desire to constantly debate some aspect of doctrine, and they are unwilling to humble themselves to receive truth. And Paul isn't just talking about the one who really wants to inquire and, and, and have a genuine desire to learn truth. But these are ones that start and d- debate, um, try to pass on how smart they are, try to prove their point, And in reality, they know nothing. We all perhaps have met somebody that they talk about something that they think that they're such experts on. And they, you're sitting there going, you really don't know what you're talking about. So those who misuse God's word, their method is disputes and arguments. Paul in Second Timothy, which we will go into in a couple weeks, he writes in chapter 2, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. So their method disputes, and out of that comes envy and strife, reviling, evil suspicions. Uh, They may pass themselves on as being experts on the Bible, but they're not. They do a lot of damage to the body of Christ. Paul is warning Timothy against those who do that, and he knew that there would be those, Paul did, that would come into the church at Ephesus and the leaders that had been put in place and here in verse 5, with useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Their motive is greed. And when Paul uses that term gain, he's talking about financial gain. That is very, very clear in the context of verses 6 through 10. Stay away from them, Timothy. And we were to do the same thing. Because we know that there are many behind the pulpits today and many that are on TV. They're the prosperity teachers telling you that as a Christian, that God wants you to be wealthy. And this is how you can be rich. You plant a seed faith, pledge your your seed faith to my ministry and God will bless you a hundredfold and you'll be wealthy and you can name it and you can claim it. Coming back on the airplane last uh, Sunday as we were flying from Newark to to Denver, they had the channels there and, and on the channels was listening to Charles Stanley. Just a great teaching of the word of God. And then the next thing I know, this faith teachers on there and he's teaching about, you know, and telling the people, plant your seed faith and use your credit card. And if your credit card got you into trouble, plant a seed faith and your credit card will get you out of trouble. And I'm thinking, really? I couldn't believe it. Sue's going, don't cause a scene on the plane here, but. <laughs> <laughs> there are many that teach a health, wealth, faith, seed, prosperity gospel. Listen, it's not the gospel. They don't teach about the cross and repenting and sin and how we need to be forgiven and the resurrected Jesus Christ and about godliness. And there are many ministries, too many, in this country and on the television set. They have multi-million dollar mansions and tremendous wealth teaching that godliness is a means of gain. And the world looks at it and sees right through the deception. But what surprises me, yet so many Christians don't see it. Now, the Bible doesn't say that being blessed financially or being wealthy is a sin. Not at all. We know that Abraham, he was rich. He was called the friend of God. David was wealthy. He was a man that had a heart after God. Solomon was the wealthiest man that ever existed. He wore golden sandals. He had the wisdom of God. Joseph of Arimathea that took care of the body of Jesus after he died on the cross and put Jesus into his tomb he was known as a wealthy man. He was dedicated to Jesus. The problem comes is when wealth and possessions begin to possess our hearts. And you have an earthly, worldly focus and priority. Focus on the temporal. And the Bible warns us against that kind of mindset. We are to focus on the eternal. We're to store up our treasures in heaven. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul wrote, But what things were gained to me, these have counted lost for Christ. The problem with people that focus in the material things, it will not bring contentment. Will you please remember that? Because you're always wanting more. And people will think, if I only had more money, if I had that car, if I had that house, if I had that cabin, if I had whatever it might be. And Paul's reminding us that commitment, uh, contentment, that is, and true satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness doesn't come with having things. It comes by having an intimate relationship with Jesus and living for the kingdom of God for eternity. We can be thankful for the things that we have. But it won't bring you godly contentment. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel, the prophet was given to a message to give to the leaders of Judah. There were some very dark days at that time. It would be right before the final assault on Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And the leaders were there denying the truth of God's word. They rejected the message of the prophets that God had brought to them. And they only had a desire for what they could gain personally. And so in chapter 34 of Ezekiel, verses 2 and 3, thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat of the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fatling, but you do not feed the flock. So it was in Ezekiel day, just as it was in Timothy's day, and it's certainly true for our day, that there are those who call themselves shepherds that teach that godliness is a means of gain. And the tragedy that it has brought to the church is this. There's been a whole bunch of, of Christians, and perhaps you've talked to some of them, that approach God on the basis of, Lord, how much can I get from you? How can you make me rich? You're a celestial Santa Claus. How prosperous can I be? how i can and name it and claim it and what i can get financially materially gain from you and then they don't get rich and they see the ones that are getting rich are the pastors and the leaders that propagate that doctrine and they get discouraged and they walk away oftentimes from the lord and they think something's got to be wrong with me with my faith i don't have enough faith and they don't understand they've been scammed Ezekiel 34 goes on to say, so they were scattered, that is the sheep, because they had no shepherd. Timothy, watch out for those guys, that their Christianity is measured by what gain it brings. You withdraw yourself from them. You're not to have any dealings with them. Verse 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, godliness, what you're going to have is contentment. You're going to have contentment. Prosperity teachers were telling you godliness is going to bring great gain. But again, the problem is this. Without a close, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, living close to the Lord, that's what brings contentment. And that's what gain is, true godly gain. Being focused on eternity's perspective. We all know that there are people in this world that have great wealth and prosperity and they're not content and they're leading miserable lives because they don't have the Lord Jesus Christ in their hearts and they will never be satisfied. They asked J.D. Rockefeller, how much is, a, is enough money? He said, just a little bit more. Always wanting more, never satisfied because God created us to worship him and to know him. And Paul uses this word contentment. It means the Greek, in the Greek, self-sufficiency. It's having a frame of mind that is independent of outward things. It is a a contentment that doesn't come with possessions of external things. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out, verse 7 says. And it's true. I watched all four of my children be born. They didn't come out with a little wallet, you know, stitched to their rear ends. Ever since then, they've been asking what's in my wallet, but <laughs> no, they're, they're great. They're good. We need to understand we brought nothing into this world. We're going to carry nothing out. And having food and clothing and these, there we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. If you have your needs, food to eat, shirt on your back, a roof over your head, be content. Keep things in proper perspective. We brought nothing into this world. We're going to carry nothing out. And if we live our lives where we're always wanting more and prioritizing the material, desiring to be rich, always wanting more possessions, you will fall into temptation, a snare, foolish and harmful lust, which brings destruction and waste. And I don't think any of us want that. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes something very important that is important for us to understand in the day in which we're living in. In a culture that says more is better and you're not going to have a Merry Christmas unless you have these things or you're not going to be happy in life unless you have more. But he said, I learned to whatever state I'm in to be content." I've learned that whether you don't have two dimes to rub together at the end of the month or whether you have been blessed financially, you learn to be content and you be a good steward of what God has given to you. But the problem is, if we don't learn to be content and parents, we need to teach our kids this and our grandkids. Where you want to have more possessions, more of this, there is a danger in destruction. You see, you can just ask Ahab and Jezebel. First Kings chapter 21. Ahab's the king of the 10 northern tribes of Israel. He looks across the valley of Jezreel. He sees Naboth vineyard. He says, I want that property. I want to buy it. So he goes to Naboth and he says, I want to buy your vineyard, your property, so I can have a vegetable garden. And Naboth said, God forbid, this is my inheritance. That that was not right in ancient Israel. Inheritance that passed along to your family was everything. He said, I'm not going to sell it to you. So Ahab goes back to his palace. He falls on his bed. He's whimpering. He's crying. Jezebel, his wife, comes in and sees him, you know, whimpering and, and, and all of this. And she said, what's the matter? Well, I, I wanted to buy Naboth's vineyard. He won't sell it to me she said, I'll take care of it. So she goes, she writes a letter to the elders of the village next to them. And she said, have a, a, a banquet for Naboth, honor him. And then two scoundrels that we're going to hire are going to come in and they're going to lie. And they're going to say, Naboth, blaspheme the Lord, then take him out and stone him. She writes the letter, she seals it with the King's seal and sends it out. And that's exactly what happened. They had this banquet. Naboth is, is invited. Uh, these two liars come in and say he blasphemed God. They took him out and they stoned him to death. And then Jezebel comes in to Ahab, says, quit your whimpering, wipe your nose, and you take possession of, of Naboth's vineyard. Well, Elijah gets wind of it. The Lord has a message for Elijah to give to Ahab. And he says, thus says the Lord, Ahab, you have murdered and taken possession. You see, he was held responsible, even though Jezebel carried out the plan. He was held responsible because he wasn't content and it caused his wife to do evil. And thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood. And Jezebel, your wife, the dogs are going to eat her by the wall of Jezreel. In other words, you two are in the doghouse. You're in big trouble. And exactly that's what happened. Ahab was killed in battle. And the blood in the chariots, the dogs came and licked it up. And as you read that chapter in 1 Kings chapter 21, that Jezebel was thrown out the window on the ground. And the dogs came and licked up her blood. They were discontent. It came to pass and they would have trouble and tragedy and death because they were not content, and Ahab just had to have his little vegetable garden. I've talked to people and even Christians. I've got to have this. I'm going to work for this. If I don't have this house, if I don't have this car, if I don't have this thing, uh, I'm not going to be happy. And they murmur and they complain. And you're going to be, in your heart, discontent, and you're not going to experience the joy of the Lord. And there's too many Christians that are trying to get their little vegetable garden when they don't understand this, that you've received the very best. You have the Lord Jesus Christ and eternal life. So Paul, as we end this morning, he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's not riches that is dangerous. It's the love of riches. And he gives a warning here. Some have strayed from the faith because of their greediness. It's a big one, folks, isn't it? And to understand that true joy and happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction is only found in a close relationship with Jesus who has given us eternal life. Listen, the riches that await us, nothing in this world is to be compared to it. So live for him. Because everything in this life is going to go away. You brought nothing into this world and you can take nothing out. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these reminders that are so important for us in, in life to learn these things, to be content, to be respectful, to work hard because ultimately it pleases you. It brings contentment and joy and true satisfaction and fulfillment. You've given us everything. And you promise in your word that you will not withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing you will withhold. And if you do, it's because you have our best in mind. And for many of us, the riches are kept from us because we probably destroy ourselves. But Lord, whatever you do give to us, may we be content and be thankful and good stewards of what you have blessed us with, knowing that every good gift comes from above. And the greatest gift has been given to us the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. And maybe you're here this morning, you'd never come to Jesus for eternal life and forgiveness of sin. He is your salvation. He is the source, the provision of forgiveness. He will bring you into right relationship with the Father. No one else, nothing else. And today is the day of salvation. He loves you. He loves you. He desires for you to come to him, believe on him, and to call upon him. And you can do that right where you are. You can pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I've been so discontent. There's an emptiness in me. I come to you. And I come to drink of the living waters. And I ask that you would forgive me. I believe you died on that cross for me. And you rose again and you're alive. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart and my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to know you. And I want to learn of you. Yoke my life to you in every way. And I thank you for this new beginning. In Jesus' name. And listen, if anyone prayed that prayer, will you please come up and tell those the prayer team that you made that decision but for all of us Lord may we learn to be content because we live in a culture that says more is better and we know that it is more of you that is better I pray that you would meet our needs Lord that you would just help us to have the godly attitudes at the workplace And Lord, that you would bless that. And Lord, strengthen us, because I know some need your strength every moment that they're at work. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to live a life pleasing to you that honors you. I thank you for this time that we've had this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? (coughs) Jeremiah, Wednesday night.